Good morning, and this morning we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's supposed to be one under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible in the seat in front of you, and you don't have a Bible yourself, and you don't have it on your phone, the verses will be on the screen if technology works. Thank you, music team, for sharing your talents with us. Jesus is unfailing. That's why I'm here. That's why you're there. And that's why we have this time where we will ponder over his word. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. I'm going to ask you two things this morning as we read. Uh, the first thing is try hard to put yourselves in the shoes of those who read that letter for the first time. So let's pretend you are a Jewish of the first Christian generation. So that means we grew up with a functional temple. We know the Levitical language. We know the law. If we did not memorize the Pentateuch, we know large portions of it. And we are used to the, all the sacrificial systems, and um, we are used to go every year. We grew up going at least once a year to the temple for the Passover. And during that feast, it was a big gathering where everybody comes to the temple. And then at the temple, it's not everybody who can go as close as they want. We saw with previous uh, preachers, um, and, and even last year when we were studying Leviticus, that, well, the non-Jewish has to stop at some point as they approach the temple. Others can go a, a bit further, but the wife and children, the women and children have to stop at a certain place. The men can go a little bit further, and if you are of the right tribe, you can go a little bit further, and you, if you are on the right family and you have been chosen, you can go a bit further behind the curtain once a year. You don't stay there. Stay there very long and you come back. So let's imagine that's the system in which we grew up. Our only background is the Old Testament. We don't have the New Testament yet. It's being written as we progress. So that's the first thing I'm going to ask you. Put yourself in the shoes of those first Christians, Jewish, who heard this, who read that letter. And the other things I'm going to ask you is to notice all the words or IDs that are repeated in these verses. And I'll tell you why after. So, let's look at Hebrews 10, chapter, 19, uh, ch chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the Greek word include both, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's not a language we use very often, right? Maybe at a certain hockey games, we think about a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or football in Europe. But <laughs> Let's continue. Anyone who has set aside the love of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Wow. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. <clears throat> For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Did you notice a few words that were repeated? Did you circle them like me, I did? <laughs> I cannot read my verses, basically. It's too, too much pencils around. <laughs> but the reason I ask you to circle a few verses is that um, it's important to help us follow the flow of thoughts of the author, those who wrote it. And we're studying the book of Hebrews so every week we have a new section or a new chapter. It's like a TV series. I know you don't watch TV series, but let's pretend. There, every week there's a new episode. So this week the episode we have is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. And in an episode, you know how it works, there's always different scenes. So you watch an episode one week, and there's always something about the chief character ends up having an accident or at the hospital and we don't know if that person will survive and and then we move to another scene there's always like like the bad person seems to be winning and what's going to happen and you know what i mean there are different scenes in 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 an episode so the words we have noticed that are repeated will help us to split 
between the different scenes in this passage. So let's call them uh, seeds, but in, in reality, those who prefer like a classy language, it's a literary units that we will look at. So if we start at verses 19, you probably noticed that the, the word confidence, assurance, is, are repeated. Since come, come, comes two times, let us, and then washed and sprinkled clean. So we have all these concepts. And then the let us came three times, as I said. So we can say from verses 19 to 26, that's, uh, to 25, sorry, that's scene number one, which we can call firm foundations for godly affection. And we'll see why as we go through, okay? Second section, we start at verse 26, and then we, the word sins comes often. Uh, fear, uh, judgment, fire, um, punishment. And so we see there's something here about sin and judgment. Let's call scene number two, verses 26 to 31. The seriousness of sin. We cannot overlook that, unfortunately. But thankfully, God has a reason why he puts that there. Starting at verse 32, then we start seeing words like endured, struggle, sufferings, plundering of your properties, confidence come back, like in scene number one. And uh, shrink back is there, and faith is mentioned, is repeated also. And then that's at the end of the, these verses that faith is repeated twice, and we're just about to move to chapter 11 next week, which is about the example of faith that uh, will be mentioned in Hebrews. So that third scenes, Hindered sufferings, um, that's uh, scene number th three that we can call firm foundation for uh, enduring sufferings, uh, endurance, and, and staying joyful in that endurance. So let's go back to scene number one. I think, uh, and we'll go through all the scenes as we, uh, as we move uh, along this uh, sermon. Scene number one, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have confidence by the blood, okay, and we have another sense uh, uh, a little bit later, and since we have, it's at verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. So these two sins, the word sense in Greek is not there, it's having instead, so having confidence having a great priest, okay? So he's presenting that, he brings that, so think about it, since we have confidence by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, which is Jesus, he's kind of laying two firm foundations there, and he will come back after, what do we do with that? Okay, but before we go there, if he lays these foundations, it's because they matter, Maybe it's because he wants us to think about it. And when I read this, we have confidence to enter the holy places for a Jewish first generation. They knew what it was. They knew what it meant. For us, 21st century Westerners, it's kind of out of context. How, what does that mean? Let's pretend someone comes to me, one of my children, for example, and they are going through hard struggles. They are uh, afflicted. 
people are mocking them because they are Christians. They are rejected. They come to me and the words I tell them is, yeah, but since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you should draw near and be happy. They would probably said something like this, Dad, you have a good theology. But what does it mean? <laughs> it's all there. For us, since we, we need to connect with that text and spend time, what does it mean? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, it was so complicated or even impossible for those people to get there. And even the person authorized to go beyond the curtain had to go through several ritual and ceremonial cleaning before entering the holy places. And now here we see we have confidence, boldness to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Everything has been removed. I can go confidently without fearing. That means I'm covered with righteousness. He sees me as, as holy. You can come in by the blood of Jesus. That tells us the power of the blood of Jesus. It removes all barriers. It doesn't matter now who we are, where we come from, which family, which tribe, whatever. You believe in Jesus, you have access to the holy places. Something is, it's almost, must have been almost shocking for someone at this time to read this or understand this the first time. So the blood of Jesus is certainly something to consider. That's a strong, firm foundation that is put there. And he's a great priest also, an intermediate between the people and God, the one who presents offerings on behalf of the people so that they may be forgiven. And he offered himself. And more than that, a high priest is interceding for the people. And Jesus is doing that. We see, for example, in Romans 8, that Jesus is interceding for us. And the scholars mention or agree that the word interceding is not a general term. It's not always praying for the global church that meet on Sunday. It's more precise. It's individual. It's for specific circumstances. Jesus is thinking about us individually and praying for us. So he's our priest. We are covered. We're protected. And by him we can enter the holy places. And look at how they say, by the blood of Jesus. So they knew that was a sacrifice. It's not just a blood sample and then you go on. It's a, he gave up his life to death. They knew that was the price he paid. And then we can enter the holy places by his blood, by the new and living way. He died, but the way is living. The contrast is interesting. It's a living way that gives life that he opened for us. Open here is the same thing as inaugurated, dedicated for us. So we can see Jesus paying the price, resurrecting from the dead, and opening the holy places, the presence of God. His sacrifice covers the believers so they, have, they are seen as righteous, and he's inaugurating it. He's happy. He's not just, okay, I paid the price. I'm gone. I'm gone. He's inaugurating it. It's, it's something that matters to him to have us coming in. He's not indifferent. There's no apathy. 
He's doing this in great pomp, <laughs> if you want. So he opened the, 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 the living way for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Again, full assurance, confidence. You don't come there shaky. You, don't, you can go in the presence of God without fear because of Jesus. That's his power. That's how this foundation is critical and pivotal for us. Otherwise, we can have no confidence or assurance. It's only in him. Let us draw near. Just uh, I want to stop here a little bit. I don't do that very often, but I think that uh, it's important to look at the word and the verb here. There's the, uh, there are three voices, probably. Um, I don't know how familiar you are in, uh, with this, but uh, the active voice in a verb is when the subject perform is the doer of the action. And there's middle and passive. It's basically the subject is the receiver of the action. Here, when I read, let us draw near, I question myself, is it an, a command? Is it an imperative? Is it a pep talk? Let's go. <laughs> How is it? How should I read this? And um, it's actually not an imperative. It's a subjunctive saying, oh, since we have, we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have Jesus as great priest, we should draw near. It's kind of, come on, that's, since we have access now, why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? It's time to go. Let me give you an example. When I just got my driver's license, um, I was with my dad working in the woods, and my dad um, had, a, he bought a pickup truck just uh, a few months before. And uh, my dad is of the generation of men who did not borrow money to buy their cars. So every paycheck for many years, he put aside a certain amount of money, and then he, buy, he bought the truck. He and my mother were the only ones allowed in the family to drive the truck. And we were five children. None of us was allowed to do that. It's like, it's like the truck was the holy place, and my, my dad and my mom were the high priest. <laughs> they were the only ones going there. <laughs> And one day, in, uh, we were working in the mountains, and he looked at me and said, could you bring the truck to this other place so that we can continue working there? Well, I tell you, my dad didn't have to give me an order. He didn't have to give me a pep talk. I think he didn't finish the sentence. I was already in the truck with the key. And, and that was kind of logical. Everything is there. My dad did the work. He paid the truck. He gave me the keys and he, there wasn't a fuel in it. So that was just natural. I go. And, and otherwise, if I wouldn't have gone, my siblings would have said, you're crazy. So, so that's the same thing here. Jesus laid down the firm foundations. And for us, it's just, yeah, let's draw here. Why, what are we waiting? It's a safe place. He paid the price. I have nothing to fear. He loves me. I cannot doubt it now. Let's draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Levitical language. You notice that, right? It's cleaning. The high priest cleanses 
himself and all these rituals before entering the holy places. Jesus has done that. Here we could read those verses when we look at the verbs. Having been with our hearts, having been sprinkling, sprinkled clean, that's hard for a French guy, <laughs> sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's, it's all done. It's past. His sacrifice, his blood, and his priesthood resulted in my washing, my cleaning. Not only external like my body, but my conscience, like we saw last week or a few weeks ago with Jeff. He's cleaning the inside, something that no sacrifice could do. So that's how powerful is our God, is, is the sacrifice of Jesus. And then he moved uh, to the verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, our faith. Again, let us hold fast uh, without wavering because we saw that the Hebrews were kind of wavering a little bit, saying, well, that's, we're persecuted by the Romans because we're Jewish and we are persecuted by the Jewish because we're Christians. That Christian thing is kind of making our lives pretty hard. So they were, should we continue in that like Jeff, Luke, and, and Scott explained very well in previous sermons. So let us hold fast. So he's encouraging them, draw near, hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Third pillars. So if Jesus was not, Faithful, if I could not trust him, why should I hold fast when I start getting the heat for following him? When there's a cost, and if I don't trust that he's faithful, I will just, I will not hold fast. I will hold back. So his faithfulness, the fact that we believe that is very important. It's another firm foundation for us to hold fast, because he is faithful, I can hold fast. He's not going to let me go. He's not going to give up on me. So I'm not giving up on him. I want to stay close. So that's the third uh, firm foundation uh, in this passage. So to summarize, we have those third pillars. Jesus' blood, Jesus' uh, ministry, high priesthood. And Jesus' faithfulness, and on that, the actions come as an outcome of fruits, fruits coming out of, of the roots. Um, and it's, it consists in drawing near, hold fast, and stir up, uh, stir up uh, one another to love and good works, and encourage one another um, even more as we see the day drawing near. So that's the third let us here. Let us. Consider how to stir up one another. When is the last time, when I read that, I sat back and I said, when is, is the last time I thought about, okay, I'm going to church this morning. I want to stop thinking how I can stir up others to love and good works. How can I encourage others to grow closer to God or grow in their faith and and, and when I go to work or when I interact with people, how much I consider their growth, spiritual growth, or getting closer to God. And that was a good, um, um, a good lesson to me, 
to think about it. And I was interested, I was happy to see that in the Bible. It says, consider how to stir up. He's inviting us to think about how I can help others to grow in their faith. And uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So he's, he's bringing this. He talks about without wavering and now not neglecting to meet together because that's probably a possibility or something going on. And then he's going to come back with, uh, he's going to continue in that line in the next scene. But uh, first, let's, let's uh, stay here and, and scene number one for the moment. The, um, we see a progression in these three um, encouragements. Let us draw near. And I was t- thinking, talking about that with Marie and my spouse. And I really like what she said. She said, I can, I can see the picture of someone drawing near to Jesus and then hold fast to him and then encouraging others, come, come and see Jesus. He is worth worshiping. He is a firm foundation for us to build our lives, whatever the cost. So draw near, that's a nice progression. Draw near, hold fast, encourage others. Christian life is not passive, right? It's interesting to see how it's an active movement that benefits others for the glory of Christ. I just want to uh, stop here on these three uh, outcomes, drawing near, holding fast, and stir up one another to love and good work. Just a cautionary note here. As a human, I like to see tangible things. So my tendency is to focus on the actions Draw near, hold fast, stir up one another and encourage one another. And I can put certain measures here. Draw near, oh yes, I do. I read my Bible every morning. I pray, I do this. I hold fast. I've been a Christian for so many years and I stir up one another to love and good works. I'm invested in these ministries and all that. And, and so I can easily start focusing on the fruits and disconnect from the roots, those three firm foundations that we saw. And if I'm a disciplined person, hard worker, I can probably go a long way with this, doing these actions, but still being disconnected. It's when the storm comes that things may start to shake a bit. If I, if I start doubting the, tr- the faithfulness of Jesus, if I start losing Uh, the perspective of the value of his blood, his sacrifice, and his resurrection, and then troubles come my way, I may start doubting and start wavering and maybe decide not to continue holding fast because I did not cultivate the basics in my Christian life. The other thing is that I can start, if I focus too much on the fruits, I can find satisfaction in it, which... In a sense, it's okay when we do things at the end of the day and we look back and we accomplish something, we're happy, right? That's, that's normal and that's biblical. We see that in Ecclesiastes, for example. But the problem comes when my actions become my gospel. They are what makes me feel good. And I don't need Jesus to feel good. I look at what I do and I feel good. And then when I go there, I disconnect from the roots again. And then I can become also... Uh, Instead of just a fruit bearer, a fruit inspector, I will check around, look at people, what they do. And 
then it's not stirring up each other to love and good work anymore. And I start disconnecting from the purpose of all this, the faith we are in it. I like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I put a little figure here uh, where you see a red line. Um, uh, the horizontal line is feeling good about my actions. And the vertical line is my satisfaction in Jesus. So the more I feel good, the more I move toward the right about my action, the less I will find satisfaction in Jesus. I'm satisfied with my action, what I'm doing. I'm okay with that. I'm proud of me. I'm doing it. I'm an achiever. So my satisfaction in Jesus is kind of... Uh, Jesus is convenient, but is rather my, my satisfaction in him is rather low. The opposite of feeling good about my action is not feeling bad about my, about my actions. is to find more satisfaction in Jesus than in my actions. And so when I look at him and I draw near to him and I hold fast to him and I... I do like he asked me to do, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and come closer to him. Those fruits will come automatically. I don't have to force them. It's kind of natural. And I, I put a slide there, nurture the roots to bear fruits. It's basically what makes a difference. So that closes section uh, scene number one. Let's move to scene number two. I put a little figure there, so a seriousness of sin, that's scene number two. And on the horizontal line, that's seriousness of sin, and on the vertical line, value of Jesus. The more I've, I move to the right, so the more I see how sin is serious, the more I see the value of the blood and his sacrifice, and the priesthood of Jesus, because I need it. But we live in a culture where Sin is celebrated, promoted, it looks fun. And if I look at that, and I am affected by the culture I live in, and that I am, we all are. <laughs> so it's what do we do with it? And if I start looking at sin like something fun, and Jesus is telling me not to do it, I will start to hate Jesus. It's a matter of time. But the more I see how sin is serious, and that's reality. The culture can tell me that sin is fun, is not serious, and let's celebrate it. But it's not true. When we look at the facts, the end, I was looking at the statistics in Canada, the number of murders associated with sex, uh, racism, is at a high, I've never been that high, addictions and all things. It looks fun when we look on the surface, but sins, it destroys it's not, it doesn't want you to be well. It wants to destroy you. So when I see the seriousness of sin, I see the value of the, the sacrifice of Jesus. If I don't see it, it's despair. A little bit like Judas Iscariot. He saw how serious was his sin, but didn't see the value of Jesus. So you know what happened. 
So the seriousness of sin is one of the things that helped me see the value of Jesus. And we'll see in the next uh, verses. <clears throat> so when we start uh, verse 26, for if we go on sinning, I stop here, just a, a few comments here. Evangelical scholars who are Christians, saved by grace alone, some will think that this passage applies to people who were among Christians but were not believers. Okay? Others, very good scholars, Christians, evangelicals, saved by grace, think differently. They think that it applies to Christians here. So, in a, this debate has been going on for centuries, so I did not try to solve it in a few weeks. I decided instead, let's keep it simple and uh, look at the words. For if we go on sinning, he's not saying if those go on sinning, if we, the author, includes himself with the recipients of the letter. So I will do the same. I will include myself. If Andre go on sinning deliberately, so that's intentionally, willfully, that's what I want, okay? After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Uh-oh. So going into that scene number two is like entering a building and there's a door that says, warning, danger, at your own risk when I open it. And then if I sin, I open it and I decide to go. I'm in a risky place because there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Christ has paid the price by his blood, his, his flesh, so he offered himself as a priest, and I'm saved, and then deliberately I put that down and I go and I sin. What else can I do after that? Well, thank be to God, we have a few examples in the Bible that shows us there's a way out. <laughs> okay? So, just before we go there, I just want to remind a few things uh, in, uh, regarding the seriousness of sin. In the law, the uh, sacrifices and, and uh, offerings are for unintentional sin, except perhaps one. There's a little bit of debate there. <clears throat> it's in Leviticus 6, when someone uh, rob or lie to a neighbor. Um, this one can be considered intentional sins, according to uh, the experts in this field. And um, so there was a way out there. Um, basically, they had to uh, reimburse what they have stolen, plus a fifth of the value and a few sacrifices. So perhaps you will remember we saw that uh, a year ago or something like that. But when it comes to deliberate sin, intentional sins, uh, we see that in the law. So those sins committed with high end, like blasphemy. We saw the story of this uh, young man with a mother, Jewish. His dad was Egyptian and cursed God. Blasphemy, that was death penalty. But there's a lot of other intentional sins that also deserve death penalty. And it's clear in the Bible, like murder, human trafficking, and others. So 
no they could not bring any sacrifice and say, oh, I will cover that. And an example of that is uh, with David when he committed uh, adultery with um, Bathsheba and killed her husband. He couldn't go to God and say, oh, I'll make a lot of sacrifices. That was intentional. It's not like he turned around and when Nathan came to him and said, oops, I didn't know. <laughs> that was clear. And um, so what was the way out? He was at the mercy of God. No sacrifice could redeem it. The only thing was repentance. He just fell on his knees and instead of resisting the prophet, he, bent, he, he fell on his knees and said, there's no sacrifice I can bring, only a broken heart, forgive me. And, and God listened to him. When I enter that zone, that room that says danger, don't go in, and I go in intentionally, the only thing, I'm entering a, a risky place where the only thing that can save me from that is the, is the mercy of God. I am at His mercy when I sin intentionally. So <clears throat> David wrote, and he, he, he wrote it rightfully, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If I look back at me, and I said, oh, I, I did sin intentionally. So I went in that place where there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I'm still there. It's only because God did not treat me according to my sins. He did not repay me according to my iniquities. And then that little phrase that continues, if, when, when there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, and next verse, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For us, it, it seems to be like a rude language. It's harsh. It's almost not politically correct. But for Old Testament people, first generation Christians read that. This is common language. Do you hear that? They saw that. It's part of their culture. And just a few examples. We see that in the scriptures quite a lot. You have a few references there. An interesting example is when the king of Israel sent a captain with his 50 men to capture Elijah. Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may the fire fall down. And the fire did fall down on those people who were coming. It happened twice. The third captain was uh, wise and say, have pity on us. <laughs> and so... The mercy of God, again, was seen there. So the fire coming on adversaries is common language for them. It's, it's nothing weird. Um, an interesting one, and we see that also among the, the, the disciples, when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, uh, he went by uh, Samaria, Samaria, and there's a village there that didn't want to welcome Jesus. So you have the Son of God coming, the, the people in the village say, we don't want him because he was going to Jerusalem, the temple. We don't believe that temple. So they were uh, intentionally trample, trampling underfoot the Son of God. And the two disciples, John and James, thinking they were, it was a good idea, why don't we call down the fire from heaven and turn them into a pile of ash? They check the box. They deserve it. Jesus rebuked them. 
He did not take pleasure in launching or judging them. I'm, I wonder sometimes if the Samaritans realized how they were spared. Because they said no to the Son of God and he said, I'm not judging them. I didn't come to, for that. I come to save people. I take pleasure in saving people from death, restoration. I don't take pleasure in condemnation. And he gave a good example here. And lives were spared. The mercy of God. It's not that he doesn't take sin seriously. He was going to Jerusalem. But his mercy is just a great protection. Otherwise, none of us would be here. <clears throat> and then he said, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was basic knowledge for Jewish people. I can imagine a Sunday school, not Sunday school because it's, for them it was Saturday probably, but a Saturday school with kids and the teacher asking, kids, what happens if anyone set aside the law of Moses? And I can picture very easily all the hands up. I know, I know the answer. What's the answer? What? That person... Uh, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was the basic knowledge at that time. Okay, for us it's rude, but at that time that's the standards they had. So then he comes, uh, verse uh, 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant and has outraged the Spirit of grace? If that system of sacrifices that was incomplete had some death penalties, what about if you despise the Son of God? If you treat the blood of Jesus as something that is secular, that is unclean? And what if you outrage the Spirit of grace? And there are two ways we can do that. Like non-believers, like the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was doing the work of, the, of, the, of Satan when he was uh, casting out demons, they attributed the work of Jesus to Beelzebub. So that's one way of outraging the spirit. The other way is grieving him by sinning. Believers who sin against Jesus, the spirit is, um, is, is grieved by that. And again, I look to myself because it starts, if we go on sinning, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved if I sin? And I put myself there, well, sadly, every time I didn't speak about the gospel or share the gospel out of fear to be rejected, for example, or every time I chased worldly pleasure or I have worshipped the gift more than the giver, I was guilty. I trampled underfoot the Son of God. I treated the blood of Jesus as, nah, nah, that's okay, I'll go and, and focus on, on my my pleasure first. So I've been in that spot. But God forgave me. So when, when, we, when we enter that risky place, God is saying, don't stay there. I cannot take sin lightly. I cannot just say, after I sin intentionally, God cannot say to me, oh, Andre, that, that's fine, that's fine. And so you just go on, continue, come back. Sin was costly to God. It cost him his life at a great price out of, 
unimaginable sufferings for us. He cannot say sin is not serious. He has to deal with it. So every time I sin intentionally, he cannot say that's okay, no problem. Oh, we won't tell Jesus. He doesn't do that. It's serious. I cannot stay there. So when I see how serious sin is and how merciful God is, my reaction is just go back to him, draw near, hold fast. I don't want to stay there. It's, it's a place of destruction. It's not true that it's a place where I will achieve what I want and what what I want. I will lose everything there if I go there. So you see, it's a kind of a, a, healthy, a healthy reaction to sin when we see how God is seeing it and his character in all this. And then uh, we'll move to scene number three that starts with verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So that section we call firm foundation for joy and perseverance amid sufferings. After you were enlightened, that's about those who have been made Christians. So it's not hypothetical. Maybe they're Christian, maybe they're not. No, no, that's... That's the one who were enlightened that became Christian. And then he said, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So that this uh, struggle is a, a kind of a, an athletic contest. It's a, um, you, you're, you're sweating uh, and you're suffering out of it. And the sufferings there were afflictions from outside people, reproach and, and all that like we will see in other verses. So after... Uh, he mentioned that, he said, uh, after you, uh, you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Oh, is it? Is it my eyes or something happened with the lights? <laughs> I saw something going. <laughs> Maybe a brain damage is here. <laughs> but uh, I, here, what's interesting is that it doesn't present Christian life as something passive. You don't become a Christian and then you get like on a boat or on a plane and someone is driving, you're sitting and you're waiting until you get to point B. It's an active life. You, it's like running from point A to point B. You're active, you're doing it, you're moving, and it's, it's, you are involved in it. So there are actions. And that's interesting. Then he gives details about what was their sufferings at verse 33? Sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes they were partners with those so treated. So reproach rejected by the people and affliction. So people were doing evil things to them. And they also partners with those who were so treated. So they did not, they did not shy away. They associated with those who were suffering at the risk of being treated the same as after that. So <clears throat> they were supporters of those that were suffering. And then next verse, four, you had compassion um, on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So these people are sufferings, are, yeah, and at the same time they have compassion on others, and that's, 
that, that was interesting to me because I tend to do the opposite. When I suffer, I, I'm self-centered. I kind of retreat a little bit, go in my sugar shack or, <laughs> and then stay there and how am I going to get out of there? And I think about myself, I'm self-centered. They, in sufferings, they were outward looking. I'm still going to help others as I suffer. That's the Spirit of God. That's, that's a godly thing there. Because, and he's, that's the third sense in this passage, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew their permanent residency was not here. It was in heaven. So that's another firm foundation, the hope that I have in the things that are awaiting me in heaven. They were looking at that and said, I can lose any, everything here and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. It's not that they were cheering every time some, they lost their house or something. It's just that did not impact their joy. Despite the fact that their property was taken away, their joy remained intact because they, were, they knew that's not my place here. I belong in heaven and that's where I'm going. And there's a steady uh, dwelling there that Jesus prepared that is awaiting me. And, and he's a trustworthy. He's a faithful savior. And it cost him a lot to save me. I can have confidence that I will enter the holy places, his presence. Because of his sacrifice, you can take everything here on earth. Even my life. I know where I'm going. That's when I am grounded in these firm foundations. That's the fruits that will come out. If not, during sufferings, I will probably drift away or try to shrink back and avoid uh, uh, that risky place. It's interesting that they didn't stay passive. These Christians were suffering. It's not just... Christian life is not just enduring or tolerating adverse life events in a passive, stoic, resignation mode. But instead, they have suffered. They were still active. Out. Oh, what can I do to help? To stir up one another to love and good works in the middle of their suffering. They could do that because of the firm foundations. You see the importance for us to go and, and focus on that? even though it's not seen a lot. If in an annual report I wrote all the things I've done, it's tangible. But if in a report I wrote, I, I ponder, I meditate over the value of the blood of Jesus, his priesthood, it's kind of, uh, it's less attractive maybe, but that's the basis for godly affection. When I see these things, my affection for Christ will just increase and my actions will follow. That's, that's the, the consequences. I was interested in this uh, relationship between sufferings and um, uh, compassion. I went on Google and uh, put these words. Interestingly enough, there are researchers out there looking at that. It's an interesting phenomenon, they say. And I found a, a, an article from Dr. Amit Sood. He's a uh, at the medical clinic in May Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And he wrote this. He studied people who are suffering. He said, I've seen two outcomes. 
Some uh, sufferings lead people to uh, depression, uh, hopelessness, burnout. Um, and I've seen people also where sufferings led them to a changed worldview. They became stronger and more resilient to future suffering. He called that post-traumatic growth. I found that interesting that non-believers are looking at that connection. And a group of researchers from the Northeastern University in Boston uh, wrote an article, I have it here, it's Suffering and Compassion, the links between, uh, among adverse life experience, empathy, compassion. And, and uh, they said we, an, an unexpected finding we observe is that people who have hope are those who will grow through suffering. And I said, ah, that, the Bible mentioned that like uh, thousands of years ago. <laughs> because we have hope and what's coming, our abiding place is there. We can endure suffering and grow into it. And they found out that um, among unbelievers, those who suffer and grow, so that go into that post-traumatic growth, they uh, are the ones who often help others after. They go and, and they, they want to help others who are going through the same thing. So Jesus' dwelling place, the place where, that he prepared for us, when I look at it, I can endure with confidence and joy despite the suffering, the time I'm going through. Uh, just a few words, I think I need to speed up here, but therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. <clears throat> Isn't it selfish to do something because of the reward? Right? If I do my Christian life because uh, oh, I'll get something at the end. It's very self-centered, isn't it? But in God's economy, look at how the text is organized. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He's coming back to the confidence of the first verse in 19, where the confidence is there because of the blood of Jesus. So that confidence has a great reward. The reward is subordinate to the confidence. It's not a firm foundation in the text. It's just an encouragement. Oh, if you persevere, there, yeah, there will be a reward. And there is a whole theology around rewards. Probably we're going to see that in one of the forums on Sunday evenings, but I'm not going to go into this. But here, it's a reward. It's a wage. You did something and you have something in return. That's the word. But it's subordinate. It's not a firm foundation. And when you think about that, would you endure all these things and think about helping others to grow in love and affection for God just for a re reward? No, because the value of the reward is proportional to the value we give to Jesus. When I get, when I get an email, a scam email, saying that I want a million dollars, I don't look into it. I delete it. I don't trust the sender, therefore the reward is meaningless. If I don't trust Jesus, if I don't have this firm foundation, his blood, his priesthood, his faithfulness, if they don't matter to me, whatever he promised me as a reward will have no value. So that's an inverse relationship there. Or, or the opposite. The more I value Jesus, the more I will value his reward. Good. 
And then we enter uh, into verses that are also a bit, uh, there are different thoughts here. Um, do they apply to Christians or not? Again, let's keep it simple because there are debates that went on for centuries here. Um, but he says in, uh, in the following verse, uh, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Just a, a quick note here, a little while, little, the word he's using is micro, very little while. <laughs> like that's where we get our micrometer, micromol, micrograms and things like that. So it, very little while, he's coming. So it, he's encouraging, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Now he's introducing faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Shrinking back. The definition can be pretty wide here. It can be just someone who is stealthily retreating out of timidity. So let's say I see something here because of my faith, I may be persecuted. Well, I'll go timidly and say, okay, bye, <laughs> I'm going to go. Or it can mean apostasy. So it's a wide range that can fit under, under this word. Unfortunately, the author of Hebrews did not give precision on what definition he was thinking. So that's why there's a bit of debate here. But again, let's stay to the word. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does not approve someone who is shrinking back. Okay, it's not written that they lose their salvation. No, God does not approve. And then we go in, the, in this zone of risky, this risky zone. And, and when we think about all the encouragements we have, we'd, we don't want to stay there long, very long, and then we go uh, back to Jesus. But it's a hypothesis, if he shrinks back, okay? And then verse 29, but we are not of those who shrink back. Here, it's not a, an hy hypothesis. We are, it's an indicative, it's an assertion. He, th he thinks about those who suffered and while they were suffering, they endured that suffering and had compassion on others. He's convinced they are Christians. There's no doubt about it. There are clear evidence of their salvation. That's why he said, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then it goes into the... Um, Next week, we'll see uh, chapter 11. So, just to close here, um, that these firm foundations, coming back to, just to summarize, I was thinking about an example in the scriptures that we saw with the Titus 2 uh, people last, uh, last meeting, I think we had. There was a person there that is a good example of someone who draw near, hold fast, and stir up one another to love and good works. It's Marie Magdalene. When she was delivered from demon possession, she just followed Jesus all the time with another, other women. And then when Jesus was at the cross, she was still there, drawn near, hold fast. When Jesus was on the cross, she was with Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she... She, 
when Jesus was at the lowest of its popularity, she was still there. It's easy to follow Jesus when he's multiplying bread, walking on the water, resurrecting dead people. But when he's on the cross and everybody hates him, and you see the worst in humanity thrown on, your, on the one you love, on your Savior, he's not popular. She was still there. And when Jesus was dead, they put him in the tomb. She was sitting opposite of it. She was still there when Jesus was unresponsive. She did not give up. That's how I want to be. When Jesus is not popular, like in my culture, I want to be close to him, regardless of the cost. When Jesus seems to me unresponsive, I'm going through this or that, and it seems that he does nothing, I still want to be there because he's faithful. I need to go back to those firm foundations. Otherwise, I won't be able to endure. Going back to these foundations, he's faithful. He paid a, good, a great price. I can trust him. He prepared a place for me in heaven. I don't see him now. I don't feel he's there or he's doing something, but I will trust him. You see that good example? And that's my prayer that each one of us will be like that. So let's close in prayer and then we'll have communion after. Our great Savior, we want to lift up your name because you are the King of Kings. You are the one who made a way for us to be forgiven, to be covered with righteousness. You are the one who gave his life up to death so that we may be forgiven. You did all the hard work and you are asking us to contemplate who you are and what you did. I pray that your spirit will just open our eyes on your value, on how precious you are, how critical and essential you are for us. I want to thank you that you are a God full of mercy. You don't take pleasure in judging, but you take pleasure in redeeming, in forgiving, in restoring. And that's why we are here. It's to honor you, to glorify you. I pray that you will use each one of us, that we will hold fast the confession of our hope, that we will always want to draw near to you, and that we will be encouragement for others to love you and come to you and persevere in you. It's in Jesus, our precious Savior, that I pray. Amen.